0: He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. Peace, peace, peace. This is Aton Thomas and welcome to the rematch. I didn't really know what to expect with Bill Beer. You know, of course, I grew up watching him. And it's interesting because I posted on on Facebook that I was going to interview him for the rematch. And apparently a lot of other people really weren't sure how his personality was going to be as well. And a lot of strong opinions started coming out on my Facebook feed. They all went back to like one of the fights. So one person said, you know, he was the most hated player in the NBA. You know, someone else posted that, you know, they wish Robert Parrish would have knocked his block off after he tackled their beloved Larry Bird. You know, it was like all the hatred came right back. But talking to him, I got to say, he's really a completely different person than even what I expected. You know, he's soft-spoken, mild-mannered, and, you know, he's just loving life. I wanted to see if he was going to be one of the retired players who say, you know, all oh, the young guys don't play how we used to play back in the good old days. And, you know, they don't do this and they don't do that. He did not take the bait. You know what I mean? He he was not that guy who you would think the most hated player would really be. You know, it's interesting for someone who kind of reveled in being the bad guy, you know, who almost enjoyed being hated and despised when he was playing. You know, I remember seeing the videos of him urging the crowd as they booed him. You know what I mean? It was like it was fueling him, you know, and he would commit a hard foul and everybody would boo him. And it looked like they was ready to like throw bottles and stuff like that at him. And you could see the anger in their faces and stuff like that. But really right now when I was looking at him, he was really a nice guy, you know, really passionate about coaching in the WNBA and being a family man. And I did have to ask him about his teammate Isaiah Thomas being left off the dream team and his feelings towards Michael Jordan. I couldn't interview him and not slide those two questions in there somehow. But I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did.
1: Every team needs an identity in order to win. You have to have that certain charisma about you to whatever degree it is and however it's manufactured, and that was our niche. That was we are the the us-against-the-world type of situation. It brings you a bond and a camaraderie amongst your teammates that carries you a long way, because now, even today, they go, God, we really hated
0: you, but you were so much fun to watch. Right. And that's a back backhanded compliment, but it is true. Bill Lane Beer was a four-time NBA All-Star who spent most of his career with the Detroit Pistons. Teaming with Hall of Fame backcourt guards Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars, and rebounding guru Dennis Rodman, John Sally, The Microwave, Rick Mahorn, they became known as the Bad Boys. They won back-to-back NBA championships in both 1989 and 1990. Playing at center, the 6'11 Lame Beer was a four-time NBA All-Star. He is the current head coach of the WNBA's New York Liberty. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bill Lame Beer. How are you doing, Coach? (laughs) I'm hanging in there. What an introduction. (laughs) Hey, we try to do it right here. (laughs) Now, let me ask you, how much of Bill Lame Beer, the tenacious, Fierce competitor, willing to do the dirty work. Player, do you, in your opinion, exhibit as a coach, or are they mutually exclusive?
1: Well, a little mutually exclusive, except for the competition factor. Um, you know, I want to win every game I play or I coach, and it comes out, you know, in the form of how I, how I treat my players and how I get them and lead them uh, and how they play. Hopefully, right? Uh, because I don't take any possessions off. I never did, and I expect them to be the same. And everybody makes mistakes, but no consistent mistakes. And you know, you're trying to instill that in them. And that's what I'm good at is instilling the competitive drive in players. You know, you pride yourself on being a player's coach. Would you say that was correct? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't. Don't, when I was a player, don't yell at me. I know what I'm doing. Right. You know, I made a mistake, raised my hand, it ain't going to happen again. Um, so I try to treat my players the same way. They appreciate that, um, especially in the ladies' league. I treat them as professional basketball players, not women basketball players. And they really appreciate that.
0: Now, is it different coaching women than it would be coaching men?
1: Yeah, it's a lot different, and it's it's, it's the same game. You know, the floors are the same, the baskets the same, um, the the competition level, how they compete is the same. They swear just as much as the guys do too. <laughs> um, but you know, the athleticism obviously is different for the men and the women. The, the guys can make up for their mistakes uh, with their athleticism, the women can't. It's more of a fundamental basketball game, and the women take things a little bit more personally. You know, in the guys' league, you can throw punches at each other and go have a beer that night with each other, and a. Women's League, they hold a grudge a little bit longer,
0: and you got to find a way to overcome that. Right. Now, I met you about two years ago at an event for um, Isaiah Thomas in New York. And by the way, I think it's great that so many of you are still close and support each other. You know, like once bad boys, always bad boys, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yes. <laughs> I think that's great. But I introduced you to my son, Malcolm. Um, He was nine years old at the time. Um, He's 11 now. And I asked you if there was some advice you can give to my young ball player. Um, And you said, and I'm sure you don't remember this, but um, you said if you're going to foul, foul hard and make sure they don't get the and one. I can see that. (laughs) uh, it, that, it It was great advice. Now, I coach his AAU team. And I have used that lesson on how to foul and how to not them let them get the ball above their waist and, you know, attack the ball. Good fouls. And they have learned and are fouling better, so to speak. <laughs> so do you think the current NBA has lost the art of fouling? You know, not not like the hacker shack or no kind of foolishness like that, but like a good hard foul to send a message, no easy baskets, you know, prevent the and one. You know, do you, do you think the NBA has kind of lost that?
1: Yeah, well, it, it's been legislated out to a large degree. You know, the league... Um, you know, many years ago, I'm old now, but you know, 15 years ago, started making rules uh, to take away some of the the harder fouls and the um, I won't call it intimidation, but I would call it you know the the, the manly part of the game uh, to make it more of a high flyer and more scoring and more scoring. More scoring. Um, so that in part of it, um, but also the players today don't really have that competitive. Uh, drive as the players in the past is because there's more jobs. There's no competition for jobs, Mm. uh, especially amongst the star players or or minutes played. So it becomes a more free-flowing, everybody likes each other, and it's a foreign game to me, but every generation is different, every, every, and the game always evolves.
0: Do you think that the the fact that some of the players do kind of know each other and grew up in an AAU system, you know, maybe it was a little bit different um, back in your day, but there was a general like I'm not saying hatred. Hatred might be a little That's bit too not strong a, of bad a word. word. Okay, though. all right. Well, a, a, little a, hatred a some of the... right? <laughs> a strong dislike. But you don't really see that in the game right now. Do you think that would kind of contribute to some of the difference?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, the the like I said the competition for jobs and playing time is not as intense as it used to be. Um, player movement uh, is is enormous now. Back when I was playing, there wasn't you know you owned the same team for a long time. It created intense rivalries, right? Um, and the money I think now has become so great that um, players uh, respect each other's bodies. They don't want to hurt anybody, get anybody in, in trouble uh, because it is a livelihood. Uh, but you know, like I said every every game evolves, and no matter what sport you're playing in, today is a very fast paced perimeter shooting game. Uh, where the big men are always on the perimeter, and the guards control the action, right so you know to each his own he 'll
0: change again in their ten years right now you, you know, when you played, you embraced the the villain type of a type of a role, you know what i mean it wasn 't necessarily that you were going out to say, "I am going to be the villain," but there was the, there was just a certain level of you know they were the bad boys, you know they were almost like the bad guys, like to be be fearful of them, and it seems like i don 't really see that in the game as much right now, but Talk about how that aspect of it kind of just created who you were, um, who the bad boys were, and that physical play that's missing so much right now in the, in the game today. Because I, you know, like I told you a little bit earlier, you know, I grew up in the Big East, and I and I loved that type of play, and we were going to battle every single night. But right now, it's like almost if you touch somebody, it's a foul. If you look at the mean it's a it's a flagrant. If it's a tech, you know what I mean. All yeah. that <laughs> stuff didn't happen back in the day. What. What, what happened to change, and, and how much did you embrace that level well, and that style uh, of play? From a
1: personal perspective, I went to Notre Dame, and half the country hated you just because you went there. So ah. I learned early on <laughs> that I wasn't going to be the most popular person around. Um, but you, you can't care, uh, and that's one of the things that I'm really good at. I, I don't care. I'm going to win the game. I don't care what I got to do. I don't care what people think about me. The most important thing is to win the game, and the most important thing is to win the championship. And I think the Detroit um, team, the Bad Boys, we all were a, a combination of, of a lot of individuals who all had a chip on their shoulder to some degree. And some of us were intensely disliked. Some of us grew to be disliked, um, you know. And we learned to embrace that because it was a every team needs an identity in order to win. It doesn't happen. You have to have that certain um, charisma about you to whatever degree it is and however it's manufactured. And that was our niche. That was we are the us against the world type of situation, kind of like the Oakland Raiders were way back when. It brings you a bond and a camaraderie amongst your teammates that carries you a long way because now you look out for each other and you you understand each other
0: and you don't care about the other team except just win. Right. Talk, talk about that brotherhood because I remember Isaiah Thomas talking about that and saying that the way that you guys were really like a family, you know what I mean? Like you guys saw each other as brothers and you were close and how that really pushed you all the way through. And, you know, I, I know with free agency and you mentioned it before about there's, you know, teams, guys are switching teams a lot of different times and they're not, you know, staying on the same team the whole time and stuff like that. But y'all really formed a, a close knit, even in a short amount of time because everybody wasn't there for a long right. period of time. But talk about how you formed that close knit and that that brotherhood?
1: Well, it all started with Isaiah as a leader. When I first got there, I was traded there in my second year. And, um, you know, we formed a nice bond. That uh, He was a great leader and I was the enforcement arm. Uh, somebody has to lead and you, and you have to have followers. And so over the course of time, we built a team of very talented people, very strong-willed people in their own right. They all had their own life and their own personality and what they wanted to get accomplished. But to, to have us all get together for one single purpose, and that was to win, uh, whatever it took. That's what drove us. Um, fear of failure was a big part of what drove us, also. We were going to be determined, we didn't want to go away from the game and not be winners. So it was just, you know, a collection of a, a perfect storm. It all happened. It was fueled by our fans in Detroit. They, you know, Detroit has a chip on its shoulder from way back when. Everybody beats on Detroit all the time. Their fans loved our attitude, loved our style of play. They embraced it, they fueled it. And it's kind of snowballed into this big thing that. You know, it's it's fun to watch, and people like say even today they go, "God, we really hated you, but you were so much fun to watch." Right, and that's a backhanded compliment,
0: but it is true. Now talk about how great the fans are, because maybe I've, I've heard that a lot about the Detroit fans and how, you know, the Palace is just this special place, and you know what I mean? We talk about the, the fan appreciation, because some teams, I mean, to be honest, sometimes you go to some arenas, and, and, and it's kind of way Yeah. It's like, you know, are y'all awake? Are y'all listening? Right. Y'all fans were always so intense back in the day. Talk about that level well, of intensity.
1: You know, like I said, Detroit got beat down for a lot of years and continues today, but still, uh, back then, you know, from the riots in 68 and... And just uh, the, the migration of the white flight out to the suburbs, and we went to the suburbs, and um, it's just the whole package of, of Michigan and Detroit. You know, always got the bad rap, uh, but they are tremendous sports fans, and they embraced our style of play. They, they everybody loves winners, obviously. Okay, right. <laughs> when right. you're winning, and, <laughs> but it was the way we were winning, and then and, and, and don't take any prisoners, and it just kind of generated an entire group of fan base. We taught them up basketball. There was no really winning basketball teams there before. We're talking about basketball. Behind us came the Fab Five in Michigan. They had their own chip on their shoulders. Right. Uh, but it was a fun time, and it was an emotional time, I think, is what really drove a lot of it. it was the raw passion and emotion of our team
0: carried over in the fan base, and they had one heck of a ride. Now, in in my opinion, you know, you would be a terrific NBA coach. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. And I I read an article in the Detroit Free Press that quoted you. And you said, um, there was a time when I was foaming at the mouth to get an opportunity. It didn't happen. Okay, I'm getting old. Uh, Just turned 58. My time's probably passed. I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. It works for me and my wife and our lifestyle. You went on to discuss how you haven't embraced the modern style of coaching, where they spend twenty hours watching videotape and you know never see their family. You're you, are you just more old school that way, where that that lifestyle? Um, because main main thing that you, that you hear, uh, coaches and seeing coaches, they're never at home. You know what I mean? They're never around with their families, everything like that. They're always at the gym, watching films, breaking down tapes, things of that nature. Is that one aspect of coaching that doesn't necessarily excite you?
1: Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of coaches, um, but coaching is about leadership. uh, You know, and the players have to believe. The players don't believe in a coach, you're you're toast. Right. No matter what level you're on, uh, they have to believe you're in it for them, not in it for yourself. I'm not in it for myself, I'm in it to win, period. I'll make decisions based upon how to win basketball games or how to win a championship. And I don't have any secret cows. So obviously, your best player. Okay, you keep them close to the vest. But for the most part, it's just calling things out and being bluntly honest. Um, you know, all the tape watching. I watch a fair amount of tape, but I'm not going to be in 20 hours a day like some of the people that they feel that they have to be so over prepared that they get too over prepared and, right. and they outthink themselves. And then. They make mistakes, and the players look at them like, "Well, you never played the game. All you do is you're a video coordinator turned into a coach." There right. are many success stories, but there are multiple failures also. Um, like I said, it's a hard business. At one point in my life, I probably would have liked to do it. I thought I'd be very successful at it, but as you get older, you're okay. And the women's league is—you know—you play in the summertime. And you have the winters off. I live in Florida, I fish and play golf. There's—it's very simple in the off season as far as. The players all go overseas. You can't really have any individual workouts. Right. And the talent level in college is not where it is to men. You're only a finite situation number of players. You have to watch maybe 20 total uh, for the draft, so that's not overwhelming. Right. So it really is um, a good lifestyle, but it's
0: fun. The players really compete hard, and I enjoy it. One of the things that I've heard about you is that you hold everybody accountable. Um, you know whether they're a the star player or whether they're the person who never gets off the bench and one of the things of uh, that players appreciate and this might be why you know contribute to the reason why you're um, looked at as a players coach um, is that they appreciate honesty you know just just tell them to, you know hold this person to the same standard that you hold this person to no matter what they're playing all the minutes or whether they're playing you know the worst thing for a player is to see a player on your team that can get away with whatever they want to do is that right. just a f- type of philosophy that you've um Purposely, kind of instilled in your coaching style, or is it just something that just kind of happened because that's the way that you think of fairness involved with the team. Well, that, thats who I am. Um, you know, when I was playing,
1: I didn't make many mistakes. Like everybody makes mistakes, but I was very diligent and very focused on doing my job and doing my assignment. Whether it's a set of screen away from the ball, I'll never see the ball, but I'm going to free that person over there. Right. Um, it's a, still a five-on-five basketball game. You have to have everybody doing their job in order to compete at the highest level. Um, so even when I was playing, when players weren't, weren't doing what they're supposed to do, I was the one who was the vocal one. I, my job always was to say what everybody else was thinking, but we're afraid to say it. Um, that was my job. So, and, and so I carried over into coaching ranks. Even when the coaches, when I was a player, they do something wrong, I'd call them out too. They uh-huh. said, what are you doing? You don't know what we're talking about. Um, so my players appreciate that I'm very honest and I'm very blunt, sometimes to a fault, especially in a ladies' game. They get occasional teary-eyed when you're getting on their face. But mm. I'm not a yeller. I'm not a screamer. I'm just a truth-teller, and sometimes
0: the truth hurts. That is that is true. Um, one of the things that I, I I wanted to ask you is about the, the New York Liberty in particular. They were very vocal and demonstrative this past season, um, and a re- refreshing defiance, to be honest with you. And it appears that, at least in in part, that they wouldn't have been able to have the confidence to stand so firm on their position if they didn't have that support from their coach. Um, are you a coach who lets your teammates know that you support them um, in things outside of basketball? Is that part of kind of developing that that trust of being a player's coach um, that would enable your the, the team to really be able to run through a wall for you once they step on the court?
1: Um, yes and no. I, I've always been a very keep it to myself kind of guy when the press was around I kind of kept them at arm's length and sometimes put tape around my locker to keep them out of my space I remember that uh, I don't I don't <laughs> I'm blunt with them and they ask dumb questions I'll tell them that it's well, a dumb question right um, so I kind of stay out of the social part of the game um, they know that I'll be supportive no matter what but I think this year that the stance that they took was really uh, Isaiah was a big part of that one he was very supportive of of the stance they took and the social change things that they were trying to say. Uh, I'm about basketball. My players know that, and they always kind of zing me well, you know, about the social part because I'm very naive about it because I don't care. Got you, got <laughs> I you. just care
0: about winning basketball games and going home and, and having fun. That's great, that's great. Okay, so I got to ask you this question because I saw... Uh, Uh-oh. Uh, I got to <laughs> ask you this question. It, it, and I, I got to ask it to you because, you know, it's a topic that comes up a lot, and it's that you were on the Dan Patrick Show. Um, this was a little while ago. And you asked who you would take. Ah, okay, I got you. Okay, Michael Jordan and his prime, or LeBron James. Mm-hmm. And I'll take LeBron James. You'll play LeBron James. Okay, Absolutely. So, <laughs> all right, so I want you to just tell me why you would take LeBron James.
1: Um, you know, he's 6'8", 285, runs like the wind, jumps out of the gym. Um, phenomenal leader since he's been you know 12 years old. Um, understood when he came into the league how to involve his teammates from the start. Um. And you can't guard him. I mean, you, it's, you can't double team. He's too big. He powers to everything. Michael was a guard. Um, yeah, he was six six, but he wasn't a real thick and strong guard. Um, he had to learn. It took him a lot of years to learn how to involve his teammates in order to win championships. Uh, don't fault him for that. It's a learning experience. Um, but we've never seen anybody like LeBron James physically. He just bullies you and can get every. He can make a walking triple double if he wanted to, right? But he doesn't want to because that's more selfish and individual. Uh, take away from some of his teammates. You got to do certain things. An average triple double, like you see Russell Westbrook right now, probably you know hugs the ball too much, and and time will tell whether that's the right style for him to play um, to win a championship. But LeBron can do anything. I mean, Michael couldn't get all the rebounds. He couldn't you know, be the assist man like LeBron James can. He was very focused on scoring, a deadly assassin, but the rest of the part of a game, LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan.
0: Okay. All now,
1: right. there's more championships for Michael Jordan if you're measured by championships. As of now. As of now, Michael you know, Michael Jordan would say, okay, he's better because he has more championships, but, you know, who was better, Bill Russell or, or Wilt? Okay. Okay, you know, <laughs> that's it. another classic example right there. Right. You know, Russell won championships with teamwork and team play and also that was was by dominant all-everything person in the world. Right. Who was better? It's, it's, you know, everybody has their own opinions on, on who, what,
0: where, how. All right. I'm going to ask you another question. Um, go back a little bit to the, 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 the classic fight with you and Charles Barkley. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a fight where you are standing up for yourself, you're standing up for your teammates, and you're not backing down. Do you think that type, not necessarily, you know, I'm not going to examine too much on the actual fight, but that type of having your teammates back, no matter what, do you think that that's something that's missing right now? Well, you know,
1: I, I'm not in the game right now on the men's side as a player, so it's that's hard to answer a lot of that question. Um, I know that the league has legislated out um, the intensity or the fights they really don't want that in the game, and there are massively stiff penalties for that. So it's taken away um, a lot of the emotion of the um, of the
0: competition. Why, why?
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Why? Because it was so prevalent in the in the in the eighties and nineties. It was so and, prevalent.
1: Yeah, and before us, it was even it was, it, it worse. was more prevalent. Right. Oh, yeah. So, B- so fights. why
0: the need to really just change television
1: the- and and just the involvement of the game and getting more young fans involved in the game? They didn't want the that side of. Of competition is but, what it but is, but they
0: don't. But they don't do that in hockey, though.
1: Hockey doesn't oh, hockey, fight. Just there's about not as every- many fights as there used to be in hockey either, though. Okay? I mean that's that's cleaned up a lot. Um, hockey, hockey, the sport is built upon smashing into each other, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> so okay, our sports not <laughs> our, our sports built upon you know high flyers, and now it's about dunks and right and perimeter shooting and being and looking good. Yeah. Um, so you get the grinders out there. There's still a place for the grinders in the game. Um, it's few and far between, but there'll be a good grinder that comes along. An like, example would be here in New York, they have one now that'll pass his time, but Hakeem Noah. Ah. I Hakeem mean, Hakeem hey, Hakeem, yeah. he's a grinder. He's out there. He did all the dirty work. He used right. his body. He knocked people around within right. the rules, and people
0: didn't like him, but you know he, he was effective in getting his job done. Okay. Last question. Isaiah Thomas left off the Dream Team. In your opinion, should he have been on that Dream Team?
1: Yeah, he should have been. He was one of the great players of his time. Um, You know, he it won championships, won MVPs of all-star games, led the league in assists, uh, you name it, he pretty well did it and won a college championship. Um, you know, he, he's in a great leader. That um, I think that he was detrimental to him that our moniker, the bad boys and who we were and how we played, probably played a large factor in that because we were disliked at that point in time and Michael Jordan and Larry Burber running the show. So I'm assuming their influence over the situation uh, kept him off the team, but you know that's only one thing. It's one one Olympic. Um, he'll take championships in the NBA because that's the pinnacle of our sport, and that he went. It goes away as an all-time champion and an all-time
0: top fifty great player. I think he's very comfortable with that. Again, I really like the fact that y'all are so close still, and I, and I agree. He's with my you. boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 but besides being your boss, I you know, know what I mean? I y'all know. have I a just, close. I, need, I just talked need. to
1: him on the phone for a couple hours today, and you know, he's a good guy, and our families are close also. Do you still talk to some of the other guys from the bad boys? Um, Rick Mahorn calls me up a lot and zings me. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but that one pretty much goes, goes their ways. All the years you play together. Uh, you kind of have your own little worlds, and um, we see each other a couple times, you know, every other year for reunions and things like that. But we all live in different towns and we all have different wants and needs. You never see John Sally unless you <laughs> go to a, one of his shows or on TV or something. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's just, you know, we keep in touch by an email or a call every now and then, but in person, everybody has their own
0: lives. Now, do you miss playing at all, especially just the the playing as far as with the bad boys, with the Pistons, with that camaraderie, with that specialness that you guys had? Do you miss it all? um, Basketball hurts. (laughs) Besides (laughs) that part. (laughs) I don't, I miss the money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But no, uh, the competition is what I I get off on, whether I'm, I'm playing golf, I'll compete against the fish trying to catch fish, or now as a coach trying to find a way to get five players to work together in order to win the game. So the intense competition that I can control um, is what I get I get off on. So that's that part I miss in the basketball world because I had a big hand and and I was a ball distributor and I was a you know I, I set the pace of the game. But um, I don't miss playing because it hurts your body and it's long-term damage.
0: Well, you're doing a great job uh, with the New York Liberty, and I think you would be a great NBA coach. But um, you're doing a great job with them. And you're definitely a pioneer. Like I said, you're, you're somebody who you know I look at young players and tell them and show them clips of you and how the physicality – because <laughs> I, I can't stand the way the Cats play today. The flopping I and all this, I can't stand it. But the, what you really brought – and you shot threes – you know what I mean? I <laughs> I mean so, it's so, easy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so my hat's off to you, and thanks Appreciate for coming that. on the show today. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bill Aimbeer. This program was written and produced by Carl Scott and myself, with talent production by Lisa Phillips, production assistance by Sean Cherry and John McDermott. Our engineer was Chris Basil. Our executive producers are Gary Honig, Jessica Robertson, Kevin Johnston, Ryan Duffy. Chris Corcoran, and Jamie Messler. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at is 36 And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Shoot me a message and let me know what you liked. What you didn't like, who'd you like to see on the show? I would love your feedback. Next, on The Rematch. There's a tendency for the mind when you hear it, it's like walking the streets and you seeing a brother with his pants sagging down with a hood over his head. It's like ingrained in us even though we don't want it we're conditioned to think oh oh he must be a gangster because images are powerful. The players tribute.com